Welcome to CCAST, a Clemson University podcast sharing everything about graduate education, inclusive excellence, research, and graduate life in the College of Engineering, Computing, and Applied Sciences. Welcome everyone to CCAST. Um, today on this episode, I'm your host, Andrea Vera, and I have with me Adam Baker. We're both PhD students in the bioengineering department, and today we're going to discuss some just general topics regarding being a teaching assistant. So Adam, how are you today? I'm doing well, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, what TA or what class do you TA for? Uh, so I TA for BioE 3701, which is the Bioinstrumentation Lab, which is a core electronics course in the bioengineering department. Cool. And so. How would you say that, would you say like all TA courses are generally similar when you're a grad student or what are the major differences between courses? Yeah, so I think that's probably going to be like based on schools and departments. I can't really say I've never TA'd for things like the tissue engineering lab, though I know other, I know some of the TAs in there. Um, I would say probably the biggest difference is that uh, the things that we're working with are electronics. A lot of the other labs are kind of more chemistry or biology based. And so that's kind of, there's, it's kind of probably just a different kind of hazard when you're talking about safety is probably the biggest difference. Um, I think when it comes to labs, it's all about skill-based learning and that's pretty homogenous across the board, the kind of expectations on how you learn that and what the outcomes are gonna be. You know, you should be able to output this level of competency with this set of equipment, which is generally pretty core to the industry. So I think if you just ignore the subject, I don't think it changes that much when it comes to bioinstrumentation. Yeah, I agree with that. Like I can imagine that for most labs, they it honestly depends on the way, but then also when you start as a TA, what were your main worries? Mostly because I know that as time goes on, you, of course, you become more comfortable with the position, talking in front of students, um, knowing the material, um, but I can't imagine having to be up in front of a class and actually now you educating, coming right out of undergrad. Yeah, so I, it was definitely like a confidence thing was like my biggest concern is that um, I can, uh, I have a tendency to kind of ramble on when uh, both when I know uh, a lot about a topic or when I know very little and that rambling is kind of just a habit that I have that is in order for me to like kind of make it up as I go not make it up but like I'm thinking about it as I'm saying it and I'm trying to build confidence as I say it so I, I kind of on either end if I know a moderate amount of it I can just give you the answer and that'll be it I'm not going to explain you why but so I think the biggest thing was developing that confidence. Um, the summer before I started TAing was also the summer before my qualifying exam. And so I was studying for both. I was working on understanding the core subjects that I needed for my qual. And then I was also working on, okay, what's this lab all about? Um, I have a similar story to what a lot of um, bioengineering majors have when they have the choice between like a materials or mechanical versus an electrical side. I took uh, electronics in, in high school was not very confident about it at all. And so I was like, okay, I'm a mechanics guy. I like Newtonian mechanics. Uh, it's simple, it's straightforward, yada, yada, yada. Um, and then I developed an interest in coding and electronics. As I progressed in my undergrad, 
And then when it came for the opportunity to um, apply for the TA job, I was like, oh yeah, I definitely want to do this. But I had never really gained confidence in the material in the first place. So I applied for the job and I was like, wait a minute, I got to learn all this stuff again or for the first time. And so that was like a big worry for me was I need to get to the point where a student could trust me when I say this is this is why this is happening or whatever. So I think that was that's probably the biggest thing. And it took really it took that whole first semester for me to feel confident on basically any point in the semester. My second semester, I was much more confident um, in and in any point this semester. I I don't think I really had any troubles the following semester. Um, this semester is a little different. Um, for obvious reasons, but uh, yeah. So would you say, was it mostly just time or did you use any resources? Did anyone uh, help you out extra to get comfortable in the course or? Yeah, so I didn't know any of the TAs. Had I known the TAs beforehand, I would have asked them. Well, I, I did know one TA and he was actually in my, uh, and still is in uh, my research lab. Um, but, uh, I went to him for some things, like I said, like what are the general expectations? Like I, that was it. But I knew that for me to feel confident in the material, like I would just have to dive into it. I couldn't have someone just spit out the answers for every lab and homework and that wouldn't work. So my main thing was I talked to the professor the summer beforehand, who also happened to be on my um, committee. And I said like, hey, can I just get all your labs and homework? And I'm just going to go through this the summer beforehand. I got through, I got through a good bit of it. Actually, I think I did go through um, all of it, um, but I wouldn't say that I was. Uh, I covered all the material. I just, I was trying to at least become familiar with it. Like I said, I was working on quals at the same time, so yeah. I found it very. If I was ever working on that, I was like, I shouldn't be working on this. Like, I need to be working on quals. I'd be working on quals and be like, I'm going to be terrible at a TA as soon as fall comes. So. It was, you know, a terrible dichotomy, but. I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize. I remember, so I also did my undergrad at Clemson um, and being as an undergrad and seeing my TA as a graduate student, you don't really realize how much extra they also have going on. Um, as a grad student, you have your own research, you have everything. And so now being on the other side of things and seeing like TAs and like oh, time management is a big deal. Uh, it really kind of changes your perspective and how you view students because you were in those in that seat once. Um, yeah. So besides being able to cover the material, um, what would you say is your overall goal in getting out? Besides it being a job, do you have any other goals yeah. and how it impacts you? Uh, on how it impacts me, I think I'm always wanting to get better at um, the material in general because I like uh, the hobbyist side of electronics and tinkering. Um, I have been working on a couple projects at home. I've built a stereo speaker out of an old piece of luggage. Um, I just built a vanity for my wife that has like electronics and switches and stuff. So I, I enjoy like building stuff at home. Um, but I'm also interested in the education side. Um, I think if, if I could twist that question a little bit, as far as one of the big things in my mind that I'm working on when I'm TAing is I want students to realize that, yeah, when it comes to electronics and the first time you're facing it in physics, it can be really confusing because suddenly the rules are very different. You're talking about things on a much, much smaller scale. Um, the universe hasn't changed. You're just talking about a different scale of things. So the rules and the equations are similar, but different. 
So it can be a really overwhelming because they can't visualize it. So what I'm worried about is when I get a student and they're saying like, oh, I just need to take this class. I don't really like electronics. Almost always you ask them why and they're just like, I was just never confident about it when I took it in physics, when I took the basic circuits and that sort of stuff. And so what I'm thinking is, okay, there's something really cool here that you guys can, even with some basic knowledge, like you can build some really, really cool things and gain some confidence with electronics. And the fact is, almost everything you're ever going to have to work with in industry has some electronics elements in there. And if you can gain confidence in that, you're far more valuable. There are students that come in and they say, like, I'm never going to learn coding. Like, okay. Uh, we're going to try to prepare you as best we can, but if you say no to this just because you had a bad experience once, um, you're going to struggle a lot longer, um, and it's going to be hard to come back from it at some point because you're going to have to relearn this in the future. Because I guarantee at least 70% of bioengineers or engineers in general are going to have to learn some sort of coding. So what I want is I want people to rediscover an excitement for electronics and to kind of overcome that fear that they might have encountered when they first uh, learned about electronics and circuits in either a physics, physics class or some beginner's, beginner circuits class. That's awesome. I totally, it's just great to see that um, not only, you know, with your schedule, but you see the importance of those beginning classes and how it can lead to a different passion later on. It's not just a course to mark off on your degree works before you graduate. Um, there's a reason why we take these courses, um, but I'm sure as you went on, there must be some stories of mistakes you've made while teaching. Oh. Yeah, no, and there's there's all sorts of like small little stories, but like, oh, you told them, uh, you told them the wrong answer on the discussion question on one of the labs, and because you misread the question or something like that, and you've mis and you maybe maybe you've done that same mistake like three semesters in a row. And so there's like 2% of all students that like don't know this one question because you misled them. And so there's like little things like that that you hope that as they study for exams, they uh, come to a better understanding and realize that you are wrong and still respect you for it. But I, I do have one really bad story that uh, haunts me uh, to this day. And that was, it was just before the first exam um, of the first semester that I TA'd, and uh, it was test prep. We were all in the lab. All the TAs were there. Um, I can't remember if um, Dr. Dean was there. I don't think she was, and I'm so thankful for that, but we were covering some question about a capacitor and talking about how there's a delay in the change in current versus the change in voltage. I don't, I'm sorry. I'm not going to get into technical there. I was trying to explain what a capacitor does over time. And it's a little bit different than a regular like resistor or something like that. And I said, okay, you guys know that uh, there's an imaginary uh, element to the current growth um, in a capacitor. And I looked at the rest of the room. And I was like on the whiteboard. I was like, you know that, right? And I was like dead silence. I looked around the room, nobody knew what I was talking about. And I was so very embarrassed and I was like, uh, and I called over one of the other TAs, Kevin, uh, maybe you should handle this one. And I didn't answer a single question during that entire test prep. Uh, and that was so horrifying. And I was just like, okay, 
I really need to learn to explain things in more than one way because I knew it in that one way and that was it and that was the way that I wanted to talk about it and I couldn't I couldn't shift in that moment from the embarrassment from all the eyes on me and like I'm not really like a I'm not like a state I don't really have stage fright like I'm not a shy person like that so that it really wasn't I've never had that I haven't had that experience like that in a long time but it all suddenly like compounded back and like suddenly I felt all the stage fright that I should have had before all in that one moment and I just blanked and just walked into the corner and just was silent the whole time uh a horrifying experience TAing uh thus far it, it, that was like my that was like my shot in my head like that was my shot to show them okay you know I'm a brand new TA I'm going to show you that I know what I'm talking about and I just like looked like I had no idea what it was and like yeah yeah exactly I always appreciate when people come on and tell these stories because it almost makes you realize you know at that moment you know TAs make mistakes uh, and they remember them because it was such a big moment for them and you come back from that but everyone you know makes it it just kind of shows everyone has these stories where they walk up and they're like you know why did I do that then I never do that um and so coming back from that just shows and you know that's how you learn that's how what you experience um and that's why I always love doing these podcasts listening to people's different experiences from different departments um and I think one of the last like big topics that we can discuss um especially right now because we are going through a pandemic and I know people are tired of hearing that (laughs) but I also know that there's a ton of questions regarding um teaching and what that looks like virtually um for our grad students and what different rules and regulations are set in place uh yeah so as far as like rules and regulations there uh you because we're having to do so much communication um, over the internet now, there I think I think TAs and teachers need to be more aware of um, privacy, uh, especially concerning student information. Um, FERPA is if FERPA guides those and has uh, and, sorry FERPA is the regulation board that is in charge of student protection regarding education, and it deals a lot with. Um, uh, relationships between students and teachers um, and a lot of privacy. So kind of like HIPAA, but for education. Um, uh, I think that's probably one of the bigger things is that people need to remember that there's a lot of information that's now all online. Um, and we are uh, probably not as secure as people would like to think um, when it comes to private information. And we should just be more uh, conscious of that. Um, try to limit using uh, email and Canvas to transmit personal data um, as much as you can um, is one thing that I would, just regarding uh, rules and regulations, but as far as how teaching in general has changed, um, actually I saw this this morning, someone someone said that uh, we've now seen our last snow days because we're now just gonna be sent home and hope that we have an internet connection. So now school snow days are no longer a thing, which I thought was kind of funny. I don't know if that's really true because you're still talking about accessibility um, with internet, which might go out. But anyway, I thought that was funny. Um, The biggest thing is that now people like me who uh, do a lot better with like uh, person-to-person contact in communication-wise, that 
is no longer available. And so now I'm having to describe things that aren't in front of me, but are in front of them and say, okay, do you have this connected correctly? Do you have this connected correctly? Um, make sure that this is facing the right direction. Those sort of things, um, when we're preparing during the summer, when we are saying like, okay, we didn't really know that we were going to be all online until like, it was like a, it was like two weeks before classes started. I mean, it was very quick. We suspected it was probably going to happen, but we didn't know for sure until very, uh, until uh, just a few weeks before everything got started. So when we were preparing for this, we were just like, oh yeah, we'll be able to troubleshoot over cameras and that sort of stuff. And you realize camera quality is now a limiting factor in your ability to diagnose something that's wrong with the circuit. And you can say, okay, show me your circuit. And you've got like this blurry, you know, they've got 100 pixels between, you know, 200 points on a circuit. And now you can't really describe it because it doesn't make any sense. And so now you're having to figure out other ways of doing this sort of thing. How do you, how do you communicate um, physical systems uh, when you can't really depend on uh, visual quality to be consistent? Um, because it's going to be dependent on cameras and internet connection, all that kind of stuff. And so you look at the, you find things like there are virtual breadboard apps, there's, um, there's all sorts of things like that that are out there that people have been developing. And now recently, if you go online, all of the ones that were free that are really good suddenly cost money because they know that they can charge for it now because everyone's needing this sort of stuff. So I think that's one of the biggest thing is that communication over the internet has um, always been really tough. I, I think there was a study a while ago that showed that the invention of emojis has actually improved um, communication over text and internet because now you can add emotions where there wasn't really emotions or context um, before with some sort of some form of digital communication. And so we lose some of that when we're talking over the internet and we're going through emails primarily and that sort of stuff. So I think that's probably been the biggest challenge with all this is that there's a personal connection and a kind of in-person uh, component to how we work in labs and develop those kind of skills. And so now it's going to be harder to develop it. Our hope is that students become more self-reliant when it comes to these skills and developing those skills, and maybe they become better. But we don't know. We'll see by the end of the semester how this arrangement works out. Um, our hope is that learning has actually improved um, because now we can't hold their hand as much as we could if they're in the lab and they have to do it at home um, with their own equipment. And, you know, we'll see. But I get that there's a lot compacted in there, but it's, it really has changed a lot of, like I said, just mostly communication and kind of confidence that you're translating um, all the right ideas to your students. So. Would you say that your <laughs> preparation for classes or how you present material has changed? Um, yeah, uh, it, this kind of bleeds into what I was saying before. A lot of the prep that I think of now, I'm not thinking as much about um, the actual content of the lectures rather than how can I better communicate this? And so now I'm thinking, okay, where in person I could have used two, um, two different uh, methods to explain this one piece of circuit. Now I might need to go through it another time or maybe find a new new method of 
saying how this thing works. And so I think I'm kind of just thinking again more about new communication strategies and how to uh, how to make sure that uh, they're understanding it. Uh, I think one of the biggest things that I had to do even actually this past week was um, my first thought was, okay, the more you talk on Zoom, the less they get done because you're making them stop. They have to stop and listen to you, make sure that their audio is on, make sure that they're actually, uh, you know, listening to everything you're saying because they could easily just zone you out and look at what's in front of you. And my concern was the more I talk, the less they get done. They, you know, it doesn't guarantee that they're understanding more. Um, but my hope was that they at least get through the lab in the time that we have. Um, and I found that I wasn't really, students were really understanding it better. They were just getting through it and slogging through it kind of on their own. I would, I would help them. I would ask questions and make sure that they're understanding things. Um, but I was a lot less engaged because I was worried about wasting their time with more information that I would be giving them. And so I had to shift because this didn't seem like this was working. And I talked to my other TAs and I said like, hey, what are you guys doing? And they said like, oh, I'm actually doing, in fact, the exact opposite of what I was doing. And I said, I'm actually doing more step-by-step. -step. I'm actually talking to them more to make sure that they're actually getting through this part. I'm continually talking to them. And I switched to that and I could definitely see a difference in their ability to understand what was going on. They were talking more. They coincidentally seemed to have more issues um, while I'm sure that the uh, more quiet sessions, they still had issues, they just weren't saying them because they thought they had to be quiet or something like that. So um, I think that was one of the biggest things is I had to literally get input from other TAs about communication strategies and then it had to adjust what I was doing. Um, and I think it was generally for the better. So that's an example of something that happened just, it was literally like uh, two days ago. Okay, so for me, I know that that communication is a big factor. As a student, I'm actually in a class um, in a math course and those math and like I'm assuming electronics, those classes that are more, you know, application based step by step seem to be really hard to be presented over Zoom because a lot of the times it's on a slide deck rather than, you know, that in person doing practice problems with someone right next to them. Um, and at first it was a very different setup compared to my previous courses that I'd taken over Zoom because my professor was, is very adamant about using the chat and constantly asking, hey, did you get through this step? What about this one? Did you get through this one? And we would have to be active in our chat room and be like, yes, you can move on. You can move on in that way. And at first I thought it was really yeah. annoying because I was like, I'm trying to take notes. Like, I don't really want to be answering all the time that I'm like, okay. But then as the class went on, I started realizing that I'm actually grasping the material easier because I'm, you know, making sure if I did have a question, he's giving me time to speak because a lot of times students feel the need that they're interrupting more than usual because you can't physically raise your hand a lot of times. You have to like turn on your mic and be like, excuse me, can I ask a question? Um, and that is just, I think, one of the biggest barriers. So I totally agree. Yeah, I've, I've seen some people try to implement like the hand raising feature on either big blue button or um, Zoom. Um, uh, or actually even, I think even Teams has it too. Um, and I don't think a lot of people really like those because it's um, very easy to ignore um, and very easy to miss because you have to be looking at either the chat screen or at everyone's boxes when you might be looking at slides for your homework or other stuff. And so the that is kind of, that's one feature of Zoom uh, that I wish they would kind of re-engineer is that like this is, 
this doesn't really seem to be working. I haven't seen it effectively used. Mm -hmm. You have to like stop everyone and say, okay, uh, hit the emotions button and see if you do a thumbs up if you get this or something like that. Like you have to stop everything that, everything that you're doing right now and you have to make sure that everyone does it. And I, I think you, I think you slow down too, it slow down too much. It's not as, it's not as effective, I think. So maybe that's, I'm sure Zoom is doing all sorts of investment in how they're gonna, how they're gonna make, how to convince everybody that even after this pandemic's over, like you should stick with us, you know? So, I mean, it's basically ubiquitous. I mean, I, I've seen some people use WebEx, some people use uh, Big Blue Button, but I, I think Zoom is pretty homogenous now in society, which is pretty funny because I don't think anybody knew who they were nine months ago. So <laughs> Zoom got pretty big out of the blue, huh? Yeah, no, it really did. They're the true winners of the pandemic, I think. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. I don't know how much their stock increased, but I'm sure uh, everyone that had them was uh, very well pleased with this past two quarters. So. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this recording. Yeah. Um, I'm sure everyone, um, they love hearing their, about, especially experiences-wise, and I know in our graduate student population in CECAS, we have a lot of TAs. Um, so this will be very useful. Yeah, no, this was a lot of fun. I'm glad I could um, come and talk a bit. I hope it uh, was helpful or insightful to future graduate students um, or just students that hear their TAs talking about how they mess up. I hope that encourages them to say like, oh, this stuff is hard. Like, that's okay if I'm struggling a bit. I can raise my hand and I can ask questions and he'll understand that he didn't always get it either. So great. Yeah. Um, and once again, thank you so much. We hope to have you back soon. CCAS is a production of Clemson University's College of Engineering, Computing, and Applied Sciences Office of Inclusive Excellence in Graduate Studies. For more information and conversations with our graduate students, subscribe to CCAS wherever you find your podcast. And remember to visit us at clemson.edu slash CCAS for more information or to apply.